Greetings in the worthy name of the Lord Jesus this morning as we begin the second part of our service. It's been a great joy to be here today and to exercise my faith with you. Um, truly, gathering together this way is an exercise of your faith. I, I don't know if, if you've ever really considered that, but uh, if you are here for the purpose of meeting together with God's people and to consider His Word, it is an exercise of your faith. Um, it is quite possible to be here without faith. I'm not saying that everyone who's here has faith, but I'm just simply saying that if you're here, it is, uh, if you're here for the purpose, we're here by divine direction um, through his scripture. I have to think of uh, this morning as we uh, sang the last hymn, and as Brother Kristen pointed out, that verse of the church of Jesus Christ, constant will remain. Um, I, I don't know if you've ever considered it, but if you belong to the church of Jesus Christ and you belong to the greatest association, the greatest gathering, the greatest, uh, longest uh, lasting um, society that you could possibly be a part of, uh, to me, it's just, it's just a wonder to think about our head, the Lord Jesus Christ, and how he has called out the church uh, for his glory and his purpose. So if you would, this morning, uh, we, we will return to the Gospel of John, the Gospel according to John, chapter 7. It's been a little bit since I was there. I haven't preached recently. Uh, I haven't preached uh, since I think it was about three or four weeks ago. And uh, I want to return to John 7. I wonder sometimes I, I, I wonder sometimes how many of the congregation reads the next portion of scripture and is prepared for where uh, whoever is preaching goes. Um, but uh, if you have read John seven, beginning in verse say twenty five through the end, uh, I, I struggled quite um, quite intently on how to preach out of this passage. Um, so I began to ask myself some questions as I looked at the text and as I considered the text. I began to ask myself the question, or various questions, what does this passage reveal? What does this passage teach? What does this passage say to us? Who is the main character? What... Uh, is, is it relevant to us today? And I began to ask myself these questions, and then, you know, it became clear to me that it's not, this passage is not about my sermon. <laughs> this passage is about the passage. It's about what God is revealing in this passage of Scripture. 
It's not about what I ultimately say about it, even though it is, it, it did, asking these questions helped me to focus on and to recalibrate myself and say, well, it's not about you preaching from this passage. It's about God's word being revealed to us. What is God saying from John 7? And then that, uh, that settled me back down. <laughs> so uh, if you would, I want to read uh, from John chapter 7. I want to just give a little bit of background again and remember that uh, we are in uh, John chapter 7 is in, uh, the, the setting is, and we'll cover that a little bit more fully, but the setting is the Feast of Tabernacles, and um, it is found, the setting is in Jerusalem, and it's this John chapter 7 probably covers roughly 10 to 14 days. Uh, the feast itself is eight days long, and then there was a, a uh, before the feast began, they were talking about going to the feast. So you can add maybe six days or four or five days, whatever you might prepare to embark on this journey, to partake of this feast. And so uh, roughly, uh, probably somewhere between 10 and 14 days is the, the time covering uh, this passage. Um, but uh, there's a lot of interesting material here, and we covered through, uh, probably not completely extensively, through verse 21, or verse 24, last time I spoke. Uh, but we, we did uh, speak of um, how his brothers and how, how this, this chapter is full of opposition. It, it shows the Lord Jesus Christ in his ministry and how many, many people opposed him um, uh, throughout his ministry in this particular section. So let's begin in verse 25 of John 7. Now some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. When the, Jews said their, when the Jews said among themselves, Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said? You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Therefore many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And then the last verse, And everyone went to his own house. All right. So, as we noted last time, chapter 7 records an intense opposition to Christ and his ministry. Uh, It also, though, reveals a variety of reactions from the people. But more importantly, as I studied this and it became just more, it just became clear that this passage is a revelation of Jesus Christ to us. The setting, as I briefly mentioned, the setting is the celebration of the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles. And think about it. It was a festival that was a week long. Actually, um, if you counted the, the second Sabbath of the festival, it would have been eight days long. And it was in Jerusalem. Jerusalem would have been full of people. There would have been been hundreds and probably thousands upon thousands of people come in to Jerusalem from the surrounding uh, Judean countryside to celebrate this festival, this festival of the Feast of Tabernacles. We spoke at length about that the other time. And so Jerusalem would be full of people. And if this, you know, if this passage, as we, if this occurrence would have happened in our day or in the age of the Internet, Social media would have been on fire. I mean, it would have been a buzz because of this passage is so full of, of, um, of people being contrary to one another, of, of division, of just outright confusion that there have been so many uh, tweets and posts and likes and dislikes that uh, your phone would have probably blown up. But, so this was, uh, the, Jesus fa- is, is in the midst of this city full of people buzzing about him. And uh, at this, by this time, well, one of the things that we see here in this passage is that, I mean, I, I think there's probably some middle ground where people are not, necessarily sure what they think of him i mean there 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 are there is that but christ presents himself in such a way 
that people were moved to either receive him or reject him. He, he was a, uh, in a sense, he was a divisive figure in that um, he spoke the truth in such a fashion, in, in such a way that they, if, if, if it burned them, they hated him. And if they were seeking, they were open to it. But uh, by this time, Jesus would have been quite well known as a teacher. Um, this would have been the last Feast of Tabernacles for him. He would have, uh, this would have been probably around uh, September. And then by the next, what we call spring, the next Passover, he would be crucified. So he's probably within six to seven months of his crucifixion at this point. And uh, he is, he is not, he's, it's not unknown uh, who this man is. But in verse 11, we see there was anticipation of seeing Jesus at the feast. Notice in verse 11, if you just flip back, I haven't read this, but then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? And... Uh, the first thing I think I want to point out here out of, this, out of this passage, out of verses 25 through the end, is simply the overarching fascination with Christ that you find here. There's a, he is a, he's the central figure of this passage. He uh, is a lightning rod in this passage. Some people like him. Some people hate him. Um, but there is a fascination with Jesus Christ in this passage. And the Jews, as we see in verse 11, ask, where is he? And I think these Jews are probably those who, uh, as in the ruling class, uh, as in the ruling authorities of the uh, religious authorities of the day, i.e. chief priests and Pharisees, if you go back um, the, it will be the Jews who sought to kill him in verse 1 where he says he did not walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. It would have been those Jews contrasted with the people in verse 12 where it says, and there was much complaining among the people concerning him. So there's a contrast between the Jews and the people. Um, so I believe these Jews would have been those who would later in this book, later in this chapter, uh, for instance, verse 32, the Pharisees and chief priests sent officers to take him. That would have been the Jews who were seeking him in verse 11. But the people, the common people, were more about asking, who is he? Not, where is he? They were asking more like, who is this man? And this is where our text starts in verse 25. And, and this is the, the first thing here, as I, was, as I mentioned, I want to just point out how that he was the focus on these last days of this festival. And uh, in verse 25 it says, Now some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? Now, if we flip back or we remember John 5 where he uh, ministered in Jerusalem to this man by the pool of Bethesda and how he healed him and how that it instigated their, 
furious hatred toward him because he, um, to them, he was not honoring their traditions according to the Sabbath. And so uh, these people from Jerusalem, remember in John 6, he was in Galilee where he fed the 6,000 people or the 5,000 people. And now he is back in Jerusalem. And so these people from Jerusalem who had experienced uh, the healing of the man at Bethesda are saying, well, wait a minute, isn't this the one that the Jewish, that the rulers hate and that they are looking to kill him? Is this not he whom they seek to kill? And look, they said, he speaks boldly. <laughs> and so these people are asking this, uh, is this not he whom they are looking to kill? And so they were aware that Jesus was a marked man by the rulers after that incident at the pool. And so is this not he? Um, How is it, they say, that he is allowed to speak boldly here in Jerusalem at this festival, here at the temple? Notice the, the people began to wonder if the rulers were actually thinking that he is the Christ. Did you see that? They said, you know... We don't really trust these rulers of ours. Do you see how, do, do the rulers, you know, how is it that they're not doing something about this man when, they, when they're looking to, to kill him? Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? And so there is this, even this division between the religious authorities and the people who were, you know, supposedly under them. And they began to question the motives of these people and saying, well, maybe the rulers actually, you know, realize that he is the Christ. And and so they're allowing him to speak freely here. Um, But then these very same people who asked this question, they reasoned, though, well, we know, though, where this man is from. We know where he is from. Therefore, he can't be the Christ. Verse 27, we know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. And so, in the, in the Old Testament, when there was prophecy given of Christ, it, you know, about the only thing that was revealed was his birthplace. And in the tradition, Jewish tradition, around the coming of the Messiah was that he would suddenly appear amongst the people. That was kind of the tradition that these people were taught and implying that he would be unknown prior to his appearing. But Jesus, this man, this Jesus Christ came with, he came with, a, um, he came with knowledge of, his, of where he comes from. People knew where he came from. And so, therefore, according to the traditions that were brought out, there, he can't be the Christ. And so, this understanding implies that he would be unknown before his appearing. And if you think back to John 6.42, where it says this way, the Jews complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? So you see that there was this this idea that, well, we know enough about his background. He can't be the Christ because we have this preconceived idea of how he is to come. We have this unfounded 
teaching or doctrine that is telling us that, well, we won't know Him when He appears before us. And so, do you see how this undermined these people, uh, this teaching undermined these people realizing that this could actually be the Christ? Well, notice in verse 31, they said uh, of John chapter 7. In verse 31, Uh, It says, And many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? So they were beginning to understand that the signs that were accomplished by the Lord Jesus were meant to verify his identity. They were meant to lift up uh, this man, this, this, the Christ. They were meant to portray him. And if you go back to John 2 again, where Jesus Uh, made the water into wine, we see that uh, in chapter 2, verse 11, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested His glory. And His disciples believed in Him. So these signs were not just, you know, doing good to the people and healing people, but they were meant to to demonstrate His glory as the only begotten Son of God. They were meant to show Him to show him off to the people. And some of them got it here in verse 31. When the Christ comes, will He actually do more signs than what this man is doing? And so they justified their faith in Him by what they were seeing coming out of His life. Again, the, just this, this general fascination about this Christ and how about this man and, and whether he is the Christ or not. He, who is this man? Well, notice in verse 40 and through 43, where we read here, this question about the identity of Jesus is front and center here in John 7. Therefore many, in, in verse 40, therefore many from the crowd when they heard this saying said, Truly, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. And this reference to the prophet is probably that reference where Moses said, there will be one like me uh, who will come. And so these people were um, considering, is this that prophet? Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem, which is that reference to his birthplace, you see, where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. And so there's just simply mass confusion here in John chapter 7 about the identity of Jesus Christ. Mass confusion. Verse 12 and 13 in in this passage also makes it clear. If you just flip back. And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said he is good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. So do you see how it was just a hodgepodge of opinions and just a, um, a, 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 a very just dark without much comprehension amongst the people. There was much complaining. There were differing opinions. And notice verse 13, However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. There was this overarching fear 
over the people about this man, and they murmured among themselves. They, they, it was almost like they whispered among themselves, what do you think? Well, I think he's a deceiver. No, no, I mean, look at his good works. You know, there was this, this just all over the place. And, and uh, the Pharisees, in verse 32, for instance, heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. It's almost like there, was, there were ripples that would go through the crowd, and it was people um, trying to figure out what to do with Jesus Christ. What to do with him. Well, I want to show you another thing here. The second thing I want to show you out of this passage is that this fascination and investigation of Christ by the people threatened the ruler's and authorities of dead religion. These people, speaking about, asking questions, wanting to know who Jesus, what is, what, how does his teaching, what, what does his teaching mean? All these things and the conversation about Christ, the investigations, they were a threat to the, to the, to the uh, Jews and the Pharisees and the chief priests. There's nothing new under the sun. We have seen this in our own lives. We have seen this in our own lives. Is that where you have honest questions about what the Scriptures is teaching, what the Gospel means, what, where is salvation? And you, you ask these questions in the right circles and you will be pushed out. These people, notice verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. They heard these, these, these ideas that maybe, well, what did they hear? They heard that many of the people believed in him. When the Christ comes, will he do more than Jesus is doing? You see, the Pharisees heard these things, and they were, they were, it, it, they were insecure, Now notice the common folks were already afraid of those who held power in the synagogue. They, had, they were afraid, notice in verse 13, however, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. The common people, they were in bondage to these people. They were in bondage to the Jewish religious authorities. For instance, if you just flip back to John 9 and the healing of this blind man, remember how they... They came to his parents and they said, what is going on with this, with this young man? Are you his parents? Oh, yeah. yeah. They said um, in, verse, in John 9, in verse, um, in verse 21, in verse 20, his parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. Okay, that was very safe to say, right? We know he's our son. And we know he was born blind. But by what means he now sees? I have no idea. I'm not going to venture my neck out for you to whack it off. I'm not going to venture to say that anybody healed this man. We, you know, if he's seeing now, that's, he's of age, you ask him. You know why they got that response? His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. Why did they fear the Jews? For the Jews had already 
agreed that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be kicked out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, you ask him. This was the undercurrent that was overarching the attitudes of these common folks to the religious authorities of the day. That was the atmosphere that these people dwelt in. It was the atmosphere Jesus preached in. It was the atmosphere He ministered in. So the rulers were insecure because their power over the people was threatened. The people were insecure because their place in the church, that is, their comfort zone, was threatened. All because of Christ. I tell you, Christ upsets the apple cart of dead religion. He does. He upsets the apple cart. And, and we, as His followers, as we consider the captain of our salvation ministering to this climate, this environment, we should embrace that. We should embrace the investigation. If people want to know more about Jesus Christ, well, why are we not talking about Jesus Christ? Why, what do we have to fear? Why are we insecure when people begin to, to question something? Well, that's a, at that point, the, the religious authorities, so to speak, should really begin to do a heart search about what their agenda is, you see. What is my agenda if I am threatened by your seeking Christ? So, the, rule, the rulers of dead religion, have you ever thought about it? They always sent officers. They always sent officers. I remember as a young man watching out for the deconstructor. It's, it does hit that close to home. It does. Religious authorities, those who are in charge of dead religion, always send officers. Rarely do they go themselves. They send someone, and then that someone gets the brunt of it. And sometimes they just simply come because they have to. But they don't have to. They can stand up for Christ. They can stand up for the gospel. So we see this, that the Pharisees sent officers. And when your agenda is something other than Christ, you must use Physical means of intimidation to control your flock. So the rulers of dead religion, are they, they, that's right what we have here. Notice their tactics. I want to point out their tactics in verse 45 through 49. Then the officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees and said to them, Why have you not brought him? <laughs> Would you not have... I mean, these officers were caught between a rock and a hard place. They were caught between Christ 
and the hard-hearted Pharisees, that's what they were caught in. They were caught between a rock and a hard place. No man ever spoke like this man. Isn't that a wonderful, a wonderful example of our Savior? And how that when He spoke words of, of, of grace and words of invitation, as we'll get to see here, words of who He is, words of His mission, words of who sent Him, words of His, of his will, no man ever spoke like this man. Well, notice the Pharisees' response. Notice how they immediately, they don't ask a good question. Well, what did he say? Wouldn't that be the question you should ask? When Jesus is talking to the officers and they say, they come back to the Pharisees and say, no one ever spoke like him. Well, what did he say? No, of course not. They said, are you deceived? You see where they go immediately? You are in danger of deception. You are no longer orthodox. You are being deceived if you even consider something other than what we are offering. That's what they ask him. Are you also deceived? And then notice what they say next. Have any of the Pharisees or the rulers believed in him? How amazing, how arrogant, how elitist that is. Have any of the elites believed in him? And then, by the implication is, who do you think you are that you can challenge the official position of the church? You know, that's the, that's the process whereby dead religion controls their people. Notice what it says. The average, the common man out there is a curse because he doesn't have the insight that we do. That's what they said. This crowd, and, and, and the word, it's, it's, it's disdainful. It's, the, the idea is that this is, they, they, they have a great disdain for the people that they're actually supposed to be ministering to, you see. So we have this elitist mentality. Who do you, how do you dare question our position? It's, in, it's intimidation is what it is. And then when Nicodemus, you have to admire him. You, you may think, well, he didn't go very far. That may be true. But you have to remember his setting. He was one of a hundred. He was called the teacher of Israel. He was in a setting where people were, where his, all his peers were antagonistic to this Christ. And they say, and he says, well, wait a minute. You just mentioned the law. That's, that's basically what they, but this crowd that does not know the law is a curse. Nicodemus says to them, now wait a minute, does our law judge someone that, that, that hasn't been heard? Does, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? Notice how he appeals to their standard and says, 
the very standard that you're upholding, you're not even keeping. You're not even interested in maintaining your own standard. And interestingly, that is exactly what Jesus said about the Jews in verse 19. Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Which is very contrary to the law, you see. And they said, well, you, are, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Well, just a few verses later, we have this. We have people who are very knowledgeable about the fact that they're trying to kill him. You see, it's, 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 you choose whatever you want to choose and you cling to whatever you want to cling to if it's not about Christ, you see. Let me move on. That was all the negative. That was all that was wrong with the people. This is, this, that was what was going on wrongly in this passage. Now I want to talk about Christ. In all this opposition, Christ was unmoved. A beautiful picture that Christ was unmoved. Notice his brothers couldn't sway him in John chapter, in, in, uh, in verses 3 through 5. They said, well, show yourself openly. But he refused. He said, my time has not yet come. See, Jesus was on a divine schedule. He was on a divine schedule. Nothing and no one could change that. So he went to the feast secretly, as we looked at in verse 10. He went openly, but he went not openly, but as it were in secret. I think what it means, he didn't go with the usual entourage from his village. He didn't go with, with the delegation from Galilee. He might have just slipped off up to Jerusalem very privately and by himself, which is what the scriptures indicate. Well, so he chose to go, he chose to do that because his time was not yet. But then notice what he says, what he says in verse 14, now about the middle of the feast. This is about four days in. So about somewhere around the middle, about what we would call Wednesday, maybe Thursday. Jesus goes to the most public place in all of Jerusalem. That is the temple. And he does the most public thing possible. He begins to preach. He begins to teach loudly. He spoke boldly. Notice what he says. Remember, all of the backdrop, all of the setting. And then just look at the Lord Jesus. What a beautiful picture of steadfast, I'm going this way, I have an agenda, I have a divine schedule, I have a message, I have a mission, we're going this way. Nothing swayed him, nothing moved him from his from his ministry, from his work, from his commitment to his Father. And then he spoke boldly about the previous run-ins that he had with the Jews. He spoke boldly about, you know, he referred to the healing of the man on the Sabbath at the pool of Bethesda and how they they wanted to kill him. You know, if if you were trying to appease somebody, you wouldn't bring up prior encounters where we butted heads. No, you wouldn't do that. 
You would, you would slip in and you would be trying to appease and you wouldn't bring up our device, you know, why we're so divided. Of course not. Not Christ. He says, we had a run in before and it had to do with this man that I healed on the Sabbath. And you were so zealous for the law of Moses that it made you want to kill me. But you don't even keep the law of Moses. Why do you want to kill me? You see, Christ was, he just, he just laid it out there for them. He accuses them of not being true to their own standard, the law of Moses. Their desire to kill him was contrary to the law. They sought to take him. Verse 44. Now some of them wanted to, to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Verse 30, we have it again. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour was not yet come. And see, the reason they wanted to take him is because he had just got done affirming again that I've been sent. I'm not here on my own. I was sent. I was sent. And they, they immediately understood that he was, he was referring to uh, God the Father and that he had sent him. Notice that he says, where he says in verse 29, But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Therefore, they sought to take him. Some wanted to take him. No one laid hands on him. Twice in this passage. But in verse 33 is, the, is a wonderful, clear declaration of his control. Verse 33. Then Jesus said to them, when these officers came to take him, sent by the elites in the church, they sent him, take this man. He's, he's, he's threatening our position and our dominance and our control over these people. You go and arrest him. They came with the power and authority of the Jewish people. And as long as they did not kill him, they were even sanctioned under the Romans. The Romans let them police their own people. But they could not kill, they could not apply capital punishment. The Jews could not. Which is why they put him before Pilate. But anyway, they, they, um, I lost my place here. Yes, verse 33, when they came to arrest him, these officers of the church, so to speak, these Jewish officers, notice what he said to them. I will be with you a little while longer. I get to decide how long I am with you. Do you see that? Then Jesus said, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. What a declaration of who's in control here. Just a beautiful picture that you are coming after me, but I will leave whenever I'm ready, whenever my time is up, and then when you seek me, you won't be able to find me because where I am, you cannot come. You cannot come. It's a declaration of inability. Make no mistake, Christ was not a victim. He had divine control of his schedule. Verse 34 is a very sobering message of their impotence, their lack of ability. They think, 
remember that they are in control. No way. Actually, there is coming a time when they will seek him and they cannot find him. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, I believe it is, it says, Seek and ye shall find. But here, he is saying, You will seek me and you're not going to find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Because I believe here in this passage, they are saying, he is saying to them, if you come hunting me with swords and spears, you will never find me. You will never enter me. If you come with harm, remember what we sang this morning. The gates of hell will not prevail over the church. These forces of darkness and evil and dead religion will never find me. Now, I want to spend the rest of this time with number four. This is point number four. In all the confusion, Christ stayed on mission. He stayed on mission. Confusion all around him, but none in him. I read a sign that, that this reminds me of. I read a church sign. It said, you may be in the storm, but the storm's not in you. And so, so it is. Christ here is in the storm, but the storm is not in him. You can trust his divine power and sovereign grace and rest in it, brothers and sisters. Notice what he says. And here is where I want to go. Christ remained on mission and he remained on message. He always maintained that he was sent. And in verse 16, he declares that his teaching is not even his own. Remember, he says in verse 16, my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He is simply declaring that his teaching is not his own, but it is from God. The doctrine that he taught was from God. And in verse 37, after saying everything that we've said about this passage, I want to focus on verse 37 through verse 39. He says, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried. You know, just think with me. There's, if, if there were this big festival in the capital city, and it is one of the most joyous occasions in all the land, and the, pay, the place was full of people who were on pilgrimage, and they came to this city, and this festival... We're ongoing for eight days, and as it progresses and as it progresses, we come to the last day, which is the culmination of this festival, the last day. And there is, you know, there's not a biblical record necessarily of this rite or this tradition. But uh, if you have a... John MacArthur study Bible on verse 37 
It says that tradition grew up in, a f- in the few centuries before Jesus that on the seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles, a golden container filled with water from the pool of Siloam was carried in procession by the high priest back to the temple. As the procession came to the water gate on the, si- on the south side of the inner temple court, three trumpet blasts were made to mark the joy of the occasion and the people recited Isaiah 12 in verse 3. With joy we will draw water from the wells of salvation. At the temple, while onlookers watched, the priests would march around the altar with the water container while the temple choir sang the Hallel. Psalms 113-118 through The water was offered in sacrifice to God at the time of the morning sacrifice. The use of the water symbolized the blessings of adequate rainfall for crops. So that is... Extracurricular, it's not in the text. But if history collaborates that, then so be it. But Jesus took the opportunity on that at that time to elevate his person and his voice. Why does it make it a statement that Jesus stood and cried out? He stood and yelled it forth. He raised his voice and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, people, here's the glorious invitation of the gospel. I want you to consider the wondrous virtue of the Lord Jesus in in light of the hypocrisy and the debauchery of the religious leaders of the day. These people were brought up They lived their lives in bondage to these Jewish people who controlled them, who through fear of casting them out, kept them in bondage. Now Jesus comes and he cries to them. Those who have been in, they've been under the administration of dead religion for centuries. Now Jesus says to them, he cries out to them and he says, If anyone is thirsty... See the vast difference. If anyone is thirsty, let him come. Let him come. So this festival is culminating in a crescendo of celebration. And Jesus stood on the last day and he says, If anyone, I want to just focus a little bit on these, ver- these words. Notice what he says, if anyone. What part of that do we not understand? If anyone. People. It was just what Brother Joe said this morning. He does it for others. Not just for us, he does it for others. If anyone. If anyone thirsts, are you thirsty? If anyone thirsts, I mean, we know what it's like, do we not, to labor on a hot day. And we're just so parched. If anyone thirsts, let him. Let him come. Just as Jesus rebuked those who would take the the children away, he said, let them come. Take any restraints away. Let them come. Get out of the way. Make a way straight for them. Is that not what God has done in the ministry of John the Baptist? He said, make 
Straight paths for the Lord. Prepare the way so that those who are thirsty can come to Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful invitation. Come to Jesus Christ. Notice it doesn't say, come to the church. It doesn't say, come to the synagogue. It doesn't say, come to the law. It doesn't say, come to anything but come to me, he says. Come to me. And brothers and sisters, if we as a church move anywhere from that, then we are no longer the church of Jesus Christ. Now we have become the religion, the dead religion of the day. If we move aside from inviting people to the person and work of Jesus Christ, if there's some other agenda that we have, brothers and sisters, we become dead religion. I want to contrast the wonderful invitation of Jesus Christ to the dead religion of the day. Notice what he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come. We invite you to come. We, we get things out of the way so you can come. We make the path level so you can come. We, re- we heard that one of the young men shared that. Make the path level. Notice in spite of all the hostility, in spite of all the confusion, the sweetness of this invitation. Come, he says, to me. And don't just come to me and wish for something. Come and drink great droughts of water. Drink, he says. Come and drink and be satisfied. If you come to Christ, I promise you, by the authority of the Scripture, he says that all those who trust in Christ will not be ashamed. They will be saved. They will be, their thirst will be Satisfied. Come to Christ. Come to me, he says. This is the very words of the Son of God, and he is asking you to come to him. This is the invitation of the gospel that you would come, and that if you're thirsty, you will be satisfied. There's no reason to wait. Are you afraid of the church? But church is not going to throw you out if you come to Christ. No, we're going to welcome you and we're going to baptize you. No, the church joins voices with Christ and says, come to Christ. We don't invite you to come to church. No, the church is what happens after you've come to Christ. Come. Come, he says. If anyone has a sense of their need, do not linger. Do not hinder him from coming. Make way for him. Let him. Let him. Let him come to me. Remember, this is not the inability of verse 39. Where it says that you will seek me and you will not find me. No, this is the invitation of the gospel. If we are against Christ, you will seek Him at some point, but you will not find Him. If you are against Christ through all of your life, there is, this, this implies an opportunity. That that, that that opportunity may close here where it says, 
you will seek me and not find me. When Christ is beyond the reach of those who would harm him. Now here is the invitation. If you're thirsty, come. Come and drink. Come and partake. Notice what he says. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of their hearts will flow rivers of living waters. Now I don't have time to, and, and we don't have a clear scripture that says that. It is the idea that is presented in the Old Testament of those who come to Christ that will be changed from the inside out. They will be, and, and, and brothers and sisters, why is the, why have, why is this church been focused on the Holy Spirit the last while? Has it not been? It has been. You know, if the Spirit of Christ is not in you, you are none of His. You are none of His. This is such a vital part. You're not a part of the church if you are not, if you have not the Spirit of God within you. Why is this the focus right now? It is done by the Holy Spirit. This, verse 38, is the fruit of the Spirit, Brother Enos taught us on Wednesday night. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Out of his heart will flow fruit. And to make sure that we understand this properly, verse 39, but this is he, but this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Christ, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Well, out of his heart will flow rivers of living waters. Listen. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you will not behave like the chief priests and the Pharisees. Who, who out of their heart flowed pride and arrogance and, and elitism and, and, and intimidation and all of these things. No. Out of our hearts will flow rivers of living water and you and I will become something like Christ was to us. Though we are not Christ, but now people can, can drink from us. They, we have something to share to others. We have something that is meaningful and satisfying to offer. Out of your heart shall flow rivers of living water. What a beautiful, what a beautiful promise. And I want just to point out something that is vitally important on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Have you noticed it in this passage? That the only way for you to get to have the Holy Spirit is through a relationship with Christ. See, the Holy Spirit is not about the Holy Spirit. He's always about Jesus Christ. And so if you are preoccupied with the Holy Spirit, then let me redirect you. Get over here and get your focus on Christ. Because that's what the Holy Spirit is wanting to do. The only way, he says. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in Him would receive. There's no other way for you to receive Him if you don't believe in Christ. You will never receive Him. 
And so the Holy Spirit always is doing His work in us to cause us to believe and to endeavor to glorify Christ in us. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow fruit. Fruit that will bless others. Well, verse 39, as it refers to the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. I don't have a clear word on that except to say that Christ, as He ascended to glory and was glorified and exalted by His Father to sit at His right hand, that was the culmination of His work on earth. And the, I believe the reception of the Holy Spirit declares to us that Christ indeed is exalted, that He is indeed enthroned, that He is indeed, you know, Pentecost should teach us that. That when the Holy Spirit came down, that meant that Christ was glorified. We can, we can take that. And we can, we, can, uh, we can assume and understand again afresh that our salvation is indeed secured. Well, thank you for your kind attention. And uh, I hope that this passage, uh, to some degree, became alive to you as it did to me. Thank you for, for your blessing.